Okay, if you would, please turn to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts. Uh, We'll be reading Acts chapter 20, verse 36, through chapter 21, verse 14. Acts 20, 36 to 21, 14. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petura. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, We went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days... There were ended, we departed, and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands And said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible historical and instructive word to our hearts and our souls and our minds and our affections. Amen. So Father, help me. Help us all who love you. Help us all who believe in Christmas. Your eternal Son took to himself a human nature forever. 
Oh, help us be led in our lives by Him and through Him and back unto you in true worship, Holy Father, to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one reason I really like this passage is because God allowed Luke to leave it as it is. It's messy. What was the will of God for Paul? Was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Was that his direction for him? Was that his command? If so, if you say, yes, that was God's direction, well, then all of these other Christians in town after town, were they sinning? Were they being used by the devil to try to prevent Paul from doing God's will of going to Jerusalem? Or is it the flip side? Maybe all of these Christians in all of these towns... They were pleading with Paul, don't go there. Maybe they were correctly interpreting the will of God for Paul. And therefore, Paul sinned by disobeying God's will and going to Jerusalem. It's messy. And therefore, I find it very instructive. It brings up the huge question, not just in Paul's life, but in all of our lives as Christians. If you're a Christian, as Christians, is there a preordained hidden plan of God for each of our lives? I'm not done yet. That we are meant to try to discern, figure out before we make choices in order that we don't make wrong choices about who to marry, about what job to take, about what to study in school, about what house to buy, about what church to go to, about how many children to have. That's a huge question in our lives. I'm going to hold off on that for a few minutes. Let's go to the text first. And I'm going to give you my interpretation my conclusion of this passage up front, and that's this. All of these Christians who loved Paul and cared about him, they were not sinning by trying to convince him to not go to Jerusalem. And Paul did not miss the will of God by going to Jerusalem. And neither would he have been sinning if he decided not to go to Jerusalem then. The choice was left up to him. That's my conclusion. Let's briefly look at the most relevant verses in our passage. First, I want you to go back to chapter 20. Starting with verse 22, Paul's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he says this to them, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, 
constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, so evidently, the Holy Spirit would impress upon these fellow Christians in town after town after town that Paul was visiting, and they would say, Paul, i got to say this. I strongly think the Spirit is telling me to say this to you. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to experience some horrific things. Beatings and jail await you there. Now jump to verse 4, chapter 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And, remember, Luke is right there, the one writing this to us. Luke is there. And he says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea. Now it's just a nice walk to Jerusalem of about, I don't know, 70 or 80 miles. So, what does that mean? I only know two options. Maybe you can come up with a third, but the two options I know of is this. First, it could mean something like this. The Holy Spirit is giving Paul a clear command that he is to obey. Do not go to Jerusalem. And therefore, if Paul decides, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he does it, which he will do, then Paul would be out of the will of God, or come against the will of God in that sense. I don't think that's what it means. Here's the second option. That the Holy Spirit is revealing constantly through many other Christians, Paul, if you do go to Jerusalem, if you make that choice, this is what's going to happen. But it's up to Paul to make the choice. And, and what Luke is telling us, this is, this is, this is how that will go. What he's saying is when they know this, these Christians love him in these towns. And so out of their concern and love for Paul, their dear friend, they're begging him, don't go. We don't want to see these things happen to you. That's what I think it means. And one more. Look at verses 10 to 12. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, as we will read further, we know that's all exactly what happened with Paul. And then verse 12 says, When we, I, Luke, <laughs> and Timothy, and the others with us heard this, we, and the people there in that town, the Christians, urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. 
So here, the Holy Spirit did not tell Paul what to do through Agabus, but here he only prepared him concerning what to expect if Paul chooses to go on to Jerusalem. And then Paul lets him know, I've made my choice, guys. Verse 13. What are you doing, crying and breaking my heart? Because I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. And since I, Luke, and the rest of us, couldn't persuade Paul, we stopped. And we said, and let the will of the Lord be done. So, here's the big question. Does Paul have freedom to make his decision on this issue? Another question. Do you, as a Christian, have freedom to make your decisions on what you will wear tomorrow? You've got to understand, there are Christians who, who can get really kooky about stuff like that. I've met some. Do you have freedom to choose, make decisions on whom you will marry, on what school you go to, on, on what you will major in, on whether you will teach that Bible study or not teach that Bible study? Do you have freedom to make those choices as a Christian? The answer in both cases, for Paul, and for us, is yes. Now, let me summarize my main point. And what I mean by that yes, and I'll try to unpack it, it's this. Here's God's will for your life. Love God through Jesus Christ. Pursue Him. Feed upon His Word. Grow in wisdom. And make choices. Take responsibility for the decisions of your life. Act. Do. Something. So now I want to spend the rest of my time on that. On that application of this passage. So the question before us is again this. Does God have a plan for your life? Now, is there a will of God for your life? The answer to that question is yes and no. It's yes in the sense that God is in absolute sovereign control of your life. And as a believer, in the resurrection of the dead someday, you will look back on your 87 years 
or your 26 years, and you will be able to say then, that was God's plan for my life. He truly did work all things, the pain and the joys and everything. He worked it all together for my eternal good. So yes, if that's what you mean, does God have a plan? But the answer is no. If by the question is something like this, is there a plan that God has? Is there a will of God for my life that I, as a Christian, am supposed to constantly try to figure out and discover before I make any decisions so that I don't make wrong decisions and end up marrying the wrong person and end up out of the will of God? No, there's no will of God like that. In other words, you are not called to be under the burden of thinking. There is one particular girl out there in the world whom I'm supposed to marry if I can only find God's voice for me to tell me her name. And then marry her. No. There isn't a will of God that's hidden from you that you're meant to be so spiritual you can figure it out about what subject you should major in in college. What particular career you should choose. In other words, in the sense of it's there. God knows it. That's His will. But right now, I don't know the answers to some of those questions. And now I'm called day by day to wring my hands until I can figure out what's secretly in the mind of God for me. And if I do, then I'll actually make a choice. No, no, no. People who would live that way, darn it, I missed up. I've been married for four and a half years and I finally realized I was not supposed to marry Jill. But I did. I was supposed to marry Susie from Michigan. I did not discern the will of God correctly. I missed it. No, God doesn't call you to live in that crazy, crazy, unbiblical world of confusion. Every one of us is faced constantly in our lives with tons of questions and decisions to make all the time. How shall I spend my money? Where shall I work? Where shall I go to church? How shall I serve in my church? Should I invest for retirement? If so, how should I do that? What should I be when I grow up? Which even people in their 40s ask. Okay. Who should I marry? Should I ever get married? Should I remain single? Okay, that's real life. We have tons and tons of questions. But many Christians have been paralyzed, tortured by such questions, and they live out of fear of choosing. Fear of choosing wrongly, because maybe I am out of the will of God. Now, 
And let me tell you, if you're hearing me correctly, in the context in which I'm saying it, that is not the will of God for His children to live like that. Jesus was so merciful to me by bringing me to Himself when I was 19 years old. I'm now 58. I have experienced my own life's journey up to this point, and I have watched the experiences of many Christians now over decades. And I have a Bible. And so I'm going to be somewhat humble. I think I am biblical when I say this. Every Christian constantly having difficulty discovering God's plan for his or her life because God does not intend to tell us what it is most all the time in its details. And therefore we should not expect in our daily walk for him to lay it all out before us and say, okay, obey that one, and that one, and that one. Now is where I'm going to stop for a moment. I'm going to pull back, and I'm going to define some terms on how I'm using the will of God in this way. Okay? First, so when I say the will of God, we're looking for the will of God, etc., etc., first of all, I do not mean God's will of decree. God does have a will of decree, which refers to whatever God has ordained to take place and to happen in human history. Or you can turn it around. Everything that does happen in human history, and I know what I'm saying, I know all the evil, and I know the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and everything. Everything that actually takes place in human history is what God willed in His sovereign will of decree. And if God decrees anything to be, it cannot not be. Okay. I don't mean the will of God in that sense. Neither do I mean God's will of command. Revealed in Scripture. In other words, God's will of desire. The way He commands us human beings to live. In other words, the way He desires for us to live. Like, do not murder and do not commit adultery and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And honor your father and mother. That's His will. I'm not talking about God's will. In that sense, what He has clearly commanded. For instance, if a Christian falls in love and chooses to marry a non-Christian, that Christian has chosen against God's will because it's clearly revealed, that issue. It's a moral issue. So, first of all, God's will of decree can never be prevented. It can never be defied by any of us, ever. God's will of command can be defied. 
It can be disobeyed, and therefore, we can act outside of God's will and not be in God's will in that sense. Okay, that's clear? Okay, now, third way, I mean it. And most of the time when we Christians talk about it or, or say, what is the will of God for my, for my life? What we mean is, what is God's will of direction for my life? Like Paul, here. Should I go to Jerusalem? Or should I not go? To Jerusalem? Or where should I go to college? Should I go into pastoral ministry? Should I become a missionary? Should I become an entrepreneur, a businessman, a businesswoman? Should I marry Bill, John, or Pete? Or Sally, or Sue, or Jane? Should we have one child, or four, or six? And on and on and on it goes. We want to know, in other words, in the sense of God's will of a direction, we want to know His very individual, specific plan for the who. For the what. For the when. And for the where. Of, in other words, when there are numbers of options that are before us that are not in and of themselves against biblical morality or commands. That's what we mean. Does God have a secret pathway for us that we are to figure out before we do anything in that sense? No. No. You can know this. Our God is absolutely sovereign. And if you are in Christ, you cannot imagine the depth of His love and His concern and His care for you. And He does have a specific plan for your life. Absolutely. But that is not a plan that he expects you to figure out before you make each step in your life. Now, I did not say God does not guide us in decisions, in decision-making in life. Oh, we are to pray. We are to be saturated with the Scripture, to drink of wisdom in decision-making called the Bible. In one particular book called Proverbs, love God, drink it in, and make decisions. It's what we're called to do. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus, by the grace of the cross, you are called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. Go ahead. Just choose and serve, serve, serve one another. Or say another, be free. Be free in the sense it is not our job to, to use some kind of divination in order to 
ascertain the will of God on the who, the what, the when, the where of each and every day of our lives on all of these non-moral issues. The good news, though, is God has laid out a blueprint for all of His children's, through Jesus, their life. He has given direction on how to choose and what to choose. And it's about the most important issues of your life. Your moral purity. Your understanding the gospel correctly. Your daily loving God with your heart, your emotions, your affections, with your mind, with your intellect, with your thoughts, to think right biblical thoughts about God. And with your body, what you do with your body. He's clear on that. He's clear on, we know what to do. Go on doing loving, caring acts for others. His will is that you be pursuing real joy and happiness in the Holy Spirit. His will is corporate worship through praising Him, through exalting Christ in song, in psalms, in melody, in giving, and in serving. That's His will. God has not call, called us, though, to live in anxiety over the future. Over, over, do I choose door number one, door number two, or door number three? Three options, all of which are not forbidden in the Bible. He's not called us to anxiety. Listen to the direction of God for a moment. From the book of James, chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, because you don't know the future, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Another way to say that is this. Every Christian is called to fight against, to resist our sinful desire to know the future and to be in control. We walk day by day as Christians into the future and we can do it joyfully 
And we can do it with peace. Not because we know the future, but because we know that the future is known by our God. That's the will of God for all of our lives. I want you either to listen or turn, but let's hear that straight from the mouth of our Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry. Picture the Creator who became and is one of us, a real human being. He says to us, starting in Matthew 6, verse 25, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And he gets to the very basics of life. What you will eat, what you would drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow seeds like a farmer nor reap like a farmer. Nor do they gather into barns like a farmer. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, Peter, John, Matthew, are you not more of more value than they, the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin cotton to make clothing. Nope. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed or dressed like one of these lilies which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father, He knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So when it comes to God's direction, here's His direction. Don't worry. And seek his kingly 
rule over your life. Jesus does not want us to worry about the future. He tells us, I've got that. Your father is in control. When he wants you to die, you'll die. If he wants you to go on living right now, you'll go on living. Seek first his kingdom, his rule over your life at this moment. Now, let me say this. In life... Wisdom, operating in wisdom, choosing based upon wisdom, is not sin. Planning for next week or the future or retirement is not sin. And we can go on and on and on and on. And on and on. Those things are not sin as long as those things are done seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in your life and in your choices. Worrying and anxiety over life's issues and necessities, they're not just bad habits. Or owing to being a six on the Enneagram. They are sinful fruits of unbelief in Jesus' promise. Look at verse 30 again of Jesus' words in Matthew 6. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you. It's speaking to me. Oh, you of little faith. Worry is a spiritual issue that must be fought with faith. We must. Fight to trust that God has grace for today's trials, today's uncertainties. As Jesus says, today's is sufficient for the trouble. It will be in your life. Walk with God today. Seek His presence and His rule over your life today. God's way of guiding our lives as Christians is not to show us what tomorrow will definitely look like. Nor to tell us exactly what decisions we are to make. Turn left instead of right as you drive down the street. Show up at work today or not show up to work today. It's not how he guides us. It's not the way He works. His way is for us daily 
to trust Him. To trust that He knows our tomorrows and He sent His Son. Therefore, we are to trust and we are to know and we are to really be joyful and rest in the fact, yes, He deeply cares for me. And therefore, we should not worry. That's our daily life. That's how we pursue Him. Do you want to know God's will of direction for your life? It's clear right there, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, all these other things. Don't worry about it, he'll take care of it. He'll take care of whatever he needs from you and for you to do during this very brief vapor of a life. Following God's will is not a call for us to seek him. For what tie should I wear to work tomorrow? To seek Him. Tell me what classes I'm supposed to take this next semester. Or what jobs I should interview for or not interview for. Shall I go on vacation? Shall I not go on vacation? Speak to me, Lord. And then you sit around and you wait and wait and wait until you hear a clear voice and direction from heaven or through a prophetic word. No. He calls us to pursue Him for who He is, your joy. He calls us to pursue His biblical commands. He calls us to pursue His glory in our lives. I know the will of God for your life. It is for you to seek First and foremost, day by day, His rule, His reign, His kingdom over your life. It is for you to live by the Holy Spirit according to His rules laid out in Scripture. I know the will of God for your life. Because the Holy Spirit said it clearly through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 3 to 8. And this is why I'm going here. Hear the words. For this is the will of God. Here it is. He tells us. What is it, Paul? For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your, what that means is being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, okay, Paul here decides to go a particular way with that to these brand new Christians in Thessalonians. He says, This is the will of God. It's your sanctification. And he unpacks it. That is this that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in 
the passion of lust, that no one transgress and wrong his Christian brother or sister in this matter. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. His will is your spiritual growth, otherwise known as sanctification. He wants you to go to that school. He wants you to study that subject. He wants you to marry that person on and on and on only so that you can be holy. That you continue to be weaned from the love of worldliness and your own innate sinful desires. That's His will. Let me go to another one. Here's the will of God for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For, or in other words, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What? His will is for you to experience joy. Which when you do, you rejoice. Yes, even in trials and pain and suffering because you're in Christ. You've been chosen to see and to believe the truth of why anything is that He would have for Himself a people and Christian, you're one. His will is for you to rejoice always. It is to pray. His will is for you to love, to want, to commune with God daily in prayer. On and on. His will is for you To be filled with gratitude. Giving thanks. For what? For the cancer that's eating my body? No. That Jesus will come back and wrap it all up. And there will be judgment. And you, as a believer, by grace alone, have been, are being, and will assuredly be saved, acquitted, declared righteous forever and ever to enjoy God's kindness to you unendingly with all the saints. That's what we're called to. That's why in all circumstances, the will of God is for us to give 
things. These are the kinds of things we know that we are to put our thoughts and our actions and our energy into. And here's how it works. As we do that in life for the next five years or 40 years, and you walk the path with the Lord, oh, it's messy for us sinful people, and you're walking in repentance, you'll look back and say, oh, I, I married her. I married him. I've had those five different jobs. I did this, that, and the other. Look at that. Evidently, that was the Lord's sovereign will for me. One more. Ephesians 5, verse 17 to 20. Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Oh, here it is. Okay, so he says, unpacks it. Do not get drunk with wine, for, for, for that's debauchery. And say don't drink wine. He, he's using this analogy about drunkenness and how you come under the influence and it changes and moves you to debauchery. He says, in comparison, no, 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 come under the influence or in other words, be filled, not with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's His will for you. Addressing one another as Christians in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what is the will of God for your life? It is, it is not some specific secret plan that He has for you, that He wants you to worry about and spend weeks or months trying to discover so that you don't blow it in your decision. The will of God's direction for our lives consists in Scripture saturation. Living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And offering praise and thanksgiving to God for His unbounded goodness to us in Jesus Christ. God's will for your life is worship. It's dependence upon Him. It's trust in His promises that are laid out in the Bible. His will is your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. To put that in one concise statement, Paul did it this way. And we know, fellow Christians, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Put that in one little nutshell. It's simply this. His will for your life is to love God. 
Love Him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your body. Go hard after God. Love Him. No, no, no. Not love Him like you, you love a neighbor who, who is needy and you need to help them. What can I do for you today, God? Have you ever been short of breath? Have you ever been held under water by a sibling? And you're, you, you want oxygen. Think about the way as a child you want to get out of the water to get oxygen. That's His will. Go to Him constantly as your oxygen. For those who love God, you can trust everything. Or to say it simply this way. Love God and make choices. That's how Paul lived. And that's what drove Paul's love for Christ and, for, and his love for the gospel against many false gospels by fellow Jewish Christians. And that's what led Paul to really want to deliver the money to Jerusalem personally. He could have given it to Luke and the others. Take it. I'll stay here. He wanted to deliver the offering, the money to Jerusalem personally in order to show His goodwill as an apostle and His desire for unity between the Gentile and Jewish churches. And so, with His eyes wide open to the risk of going to Jerusalem, His sanctification... His Christ-likeness led him to his choice to go to Jerusalem. As he says to those Christians who loved him, what are you doing? Why are you crying and breaking my heart? Making me feel so bad that if I go to Jerusalem, you're hurt. Because look, guys, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, Luke says, we stopped bugging him about it. And we said to one another, let the will of the Lord be done. So we who, who love Jesus, we are called to pursue the revealed will of God in the Scripture first and foremost. Or to say it differently, to walk like Paul. To love God. To walk with God. And then do what you want. Make choices. For this is eternal life. Jesus said to the Father. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
not only for the Sermon on the Mount and what you have told us, but that you, you had Matthew (laughs) put it on paper so we will know your will for our lives. We thank you that you are utterly trustworthy. We thank you. You have proven the love of God for his own glory in saving sinners like us by your death on the cross in your glorious resurrection. And so let us with the Apostle Paul go on in our lives day by day making choices and knowing what love this is. That, Father, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him for us all. And therefore, how shall you not, by him, with him, and through him, give to us all that we need? Amen.